who knows, in a thousand years, even this podcast may be worth something. Hello folks, this is Rish Outfield, and this is the Rish Outcast. And I'm driving with you, I'd like to think, partly just for the sake of driving. You ever do that? Uh, actually, I gotta go to the ATM, but I could do that at any point. I chose to do it right now so that you and I could talk about a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Henry Jones Jr. Junior? Junior colloquially known as Indiana Jones. In the summer of 1981, my father took me and my mom out to the movies to see a little film called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was the most significant filmic experience I had had up to that point. Uh, It wowed me and excited me and thrilled me, entertained me, like no movie had. And uh, it made a a lifelong fan of Indiana Jones, of me, Steven Spielberg, of me. The next summer, uh, E.T. was much the same for me. It really captured my imagination and my heart. And the third summer in a row, 1983 summer, I saw Return of the Jedi and it made a lifelong Star Wars fan of me. And so I had these three movies in a row that just uh, did what no movies had done before. And here we are in 2023, and as I'm recording this, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is just about to open. And, uh, you know, I'm introspective. I'm thinking, I'm retrospective. I'm thinking about my experiences with the Indiana Jones character with my favorite actor, Harrison Ford, and I thought I would say a few words, at least between here and the the ATM. I went to an ATM this morning, and uh, it didn't even have an out-of-order sign on it. It was just dark, and I was dumb enough to go up to it and push a button, hoping that maybe it was just in sleep mode, but no, it wasn't even on. But here we are again, and... Uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to talk to you a little bit about my love for uh, the Indiana Jones film franchise. And I was uh, a little boy, maybe too young for what Raiders of the Lost Ark was, especially at the end. But I wasn't terrified by it. I, I was captivated. I thought it was the coolest thing I had ever seen. And I would tell my cousin about this guy's face melting and you could see the skeleton and these angels that turned into monsters. And we had a, a garage door. It was before we had an electric garage door opener, uh, something that my mom insisted on before too long because you'd have to lift the whole garage door up and push it down. And I was little enough that I, I would swing by the rope of our garage door when it was up and pretend that I was Indiana Jones. And I would do it over and over and over again, almost like it was a ride or playground equipment or something like that. And once we got the, um, the electric one, you know, the, the clicker version of the garage door opener, I, 
I was not supposed to do that anymore because they said, you know, my weight would break the mechanism. But I was such a skinny, slight kid that uh, that probably was not the case. I probably could have been swinging on it at 12 years old and, and been fine. My dad and I didn't have a tremendous amount in common. We didn't connect on many levels, but he loved the movies and he really loved that movie, Raiders. Um, I wished that we had had a, 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 the relationship where we could have gone to see it over and over again or had a theater in our little town. They had a theater when he was a kid in that little town. Of course, the town got smaller as the years went on. But uh, I only saw Raiders that one time. And then I think the next time I saw it was like in 80, uh, 84 or 85. My uh, cousin had uh, HBO and I think it was on and I watched it. And by then there was a, a Temple of Doom, which I did get to see twice in the theater. And um, I had the score. My grandma got me the score on a, a record. And uh, I used to listen to it a lot on the record. But the downside to those vinyl records was that they would get scratched and then uh, they would skip or worse than skip they would get stuck and uh, to make that not a big problem I think my uncle John suggested that I, I record the record onto a tape and you know tapes never skip tapes well we thought tapes never wore out but you know they, they would and so I recorded the whole Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom score by John Williams onto a cassette. And um, we'll put a pin in that bit. Oh, I just drove past the bank. Silly, huh? Temple of Doom I saw probably in June of 1984. It came out, and I think even before it had come out, there was just this talk of it being too violent and scary for children. And that was one that I, I really, really wanted to see because I loved Indiana Jones and I loved the movies. I loved Harrison Ford. By this point, I'd become a huge Star Wars fan. Still hadn't seen Empire Strikes Back, but I, I had so much excitement for the second one. Uh, but then, you know, there was all this talk of, no, hey, don't take your kids to see this movie. Summer of 84, that, that same theater where I saw Raiders they had on their marquee when Temple of Doom came out, they said, uh, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, not for kids. They had put that in the same block letters as the title of the movie on their marquee. And either before or after that, whenever Splash came out that summer, it said Splash, not for kids. And I, uh, I distinctly remember that. But I pestered my mom and dad to let me see Temple of Doom, and I think my mom gave me some kind of deal where, you know, if like I did all my chores and all that stuff, she and my dad would go see it. And then if if they deemed it, yeah, it wasn't my mom's decision. It was always my dad's decision. This is the household that we lived in. If my dad deemed it appropriate and I had done all my chores, then my mom would take me to see it. I think by this point, uh, my relationship with my father had deteriorated enough that he wouldn't take me to see it no matter how much he liked 
the movie. It was up to my mom to take me. And, you know, that's that's a shame. I wish that he had had, had made more of an effort to befriend me or to or to to do stuff with me. And I, I you know, if I could sit him down today, he'd probably say you wouldn't have made an effort either because you were a no good kid. And, and, and it's hard to argue with that, except for, you know, that I was a 10 year old kid. I was a child. Anyhow, my mom and dad went to see it probably on a Friday. There was a babysitter and I waited up in the second that they came home from seeing Temple of Doom. I was like, what did you think, dad? What did you think? Can I go see it? I was like, yeah, it was all right. And uh, I asked him about the little boy that was in the movie. And I said, was he, he wasn't a very good actor, was he? And he goes, ah, he was all right. I was like, oh, okay. I said, well, what'd you think? And he's like, the girl was way prettier than the first one. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, Anyway, you know, then I began to pester my mom to take me to see it. And uh, what she did was that she took me and my friend to the theater and just dropped us off and then came to get us when it was over. And I think that was the first time that she had ever done that, where I got to feel like I was grown up because I was seeing the movie with my friend, you know, without an adult present. But, um, you know, I ate up Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And, and for years I heard how traumatic it was and how ghastly and, and violent and mean and racist it was. And I just, I, I, I never really understood that. But I would. Indeed. If the Ark is there, Thomas, it is something that man was not meant to disturb. Death surrounds it. So uh, people criticized Temple of Doom for its violence and, and, and all those other things that I said. And it's the reason we have a PG-13. Although that still probably would have happened. And now everything is PG-13 whether it deserves it or not. That's fine, they feel like they've found the sweet spot. For me, Temple of Doom was magical because there was a kid involved. There was the character of Short Round who was about my age and he got to go on adventures with Indy who was like a surrogate father to him. And Short Round was in danger and yeah he got him into trouble a few times but he was also able to save the day a couple of times and that was just amazing to me it was something that spoke to me ah that's what i want to do oh my gosh the people that criticized short round i feel were probably too old or too young but i was just the perfect age for for projecting myself into those shoes and just wishing that I could go on adventures and, uh, you know, escape along with Indiana Jones. And um, now, in, in, in preparation for the new Indiana Jones's release, there have been tons and tons of retrospectives and YouTube videos and criticisms and commentaries, making ofs and that sort of thing on these movies. And I watched one recently that talked about the impact that Temple of Doom had and the scene where there's the the victim, the sacrificed victim that is put in the metal cage and, you know, Molaram takes out his heart and he, 
he's lowered into the lava and his body is writhing in agony as it's on fire. Suddenly, as a middle-aged man, that really bothered me. Whereas as a child, it was make-believe. And, you know, later when I found out that they built like an animatronic dummy that they could actually set on fire and it would move like a person, you know, a puppet, essentially. I was just like, wow, that's so, so cool. But watching it this year, watching it in 2023, I didn't think it was cool. I was upset by it because I was empathetic, because I thought of it being a real person who's saying, Om Nam Shivai, Om Nam Shivai, Om Nam Shivai, and Fudge, dude. It was weird that suddenly I got it why so many people were upset by that movie. You know, there's also the racism, you know, the people saying, you know, India's the white savior. People have a problem with that. And that the thuggy and, you know, it's just an excuse to, to hate on whatever color Indian people are. That still doesn't affect me at all. You know, anytime somebody complains about the white savior in a movie, sorry, it just, it falls on deaf ears for me. Because we all need a hero at some point, no matter what color we are. And somebody that comes in and sees that somebody else is being oppressed and they do something about it. There, there is a certain segment of the population that could complain about something like that. But, yeah, I am not among them. If, if you go somewhere and you can make a difference for good, then you do it. You don't look at the skin color of the people around you and say, oh, it would be inappropriate. And, and you know, that's not what people are saying except for in a way it is. There are people that are seeing the skin color before anything else. Context doesn't enter into it. You've heard me say that a hundred times. I'm a big fan of context. And so let's let's just skip. There's still one more uh, Temple of Doom thing I want to say, but let's skip to 1989 when we've got uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now that also came out in May and it happened to have come out on the last day of school. And so I had made arrangements to have my mom take us, to to take my best friend and me to see it. And once again, she was gonna drop us off. Um, You recall it had been five years since the last Indiana Jones movie. And so, you know, I still wasn't old enough to drive, but I was getting closer, right? And I, I, I think my brother had a, baseball game or maybe my buddy Dennis had a baseball game or something that day because we went to it and we were hanging out waiting for it to be time for my mom to take us to the theater. We were going to go see the seven o'clock showing at the same theater where I saw Raiders and Temple of Doom. There's kind of a neat symmetry to that and my best friend Dennis's little brother invited himself to come along. And I didn't want him to come. I, I wanted it to just be me and Dennis. But Dennis's mom said, either, either your brother can come along or neither of you can go. Which I guess makes sense. 
Except for it didn't at the time. Junior! What does it mean, Junior? What's his name? Henry? Jones? Junior! So anyway, the three of us ended up going to see it, and I feel like that spoiled my enjoyment of, of that third film. And I... Well, see, there was also an antagonistic relationship between Dennis's brother and me. And, and sometimes we were friendly, but sometimes he would try to pick fights. And maybe he did on the way, and he really wanted to rub it in that, you know, Mom said I could go and you said I couldn't kind of thing. But that sort of soured the film for me, and I didn't enjoy it as much as I had the first two. Later, I grew to appreciate Last Crusade, and I, you know, if I had had a different relationship with my father, that would have been a fun one for the two of us to go see. But the two of us never went and saw a movie together, as far as I remember, in my entire life. That's just not the relationship that we had. We were not friends. And that's too bad because I think he would have enjoyed the movie and it would have been a cool memory that we had together. My dad was a big Sean Connery fan and we were both big Harrison Ford fans. So it would have been fun, but ah well. The, uh, the next movie was years and years and years later. I was trying to do the math of how long it is between 1989 and 2008. And I think it's 19 years, but I, I could be wrong. That's a crazy amount of time. Uh, you know, we had a Indiana Jones TV series that I really only saw like the first four episodes of, maybe even three episodes, although I did like it. I didn't like the eye patch stuff, but I, I really liked Sean Patrick Flannery as young Indiana Jones, as whatever you call it, 20-something Indiana Jones. Uh, there, there were some books. I picked up a couple of books in the 90s uh, by Rob McGregor that I really enjoyed. And, and, and all through the 90s, there were rumors that Harrison wanted to do another one. And it's been well documented why it didn't happen. It's just a shame that it didn't happen because that's a franchise that he has always been very, very enthusiastic about. And sometimes you can get the Harrison that doesn't want to do press, that doesn't want to answer questions. I don't want to talk about Han Solo ever again, not Chewbacca and Star Wars. You know, there's that curmudgeon Harrison Ford. But with the Indiana Jones character, he comes to life. He is, is it, he's a fan, believe it or not. And so, yeah, there should easily have been a movie or more, or more than one in the 90s that took place during World War II. That would have been really solid. But oh well, Spielberg didn't want to do Nazi stories anymore. It became too personal, too real to him, I think. And I, 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 I do get that. Anyway, uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out in 2008. And the writing was on the wall there when they announced the title. Because it's, it's just too unwieldy. And it's... I'm not going to say it's a bad title, but it's not a good title. Uh, I had argued at the time, you know, it should have been Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Skull, or Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Indiana Jones and the, well, there, there were a bunch of alternate titles that people had come up with during the years of its development. 
And my favorite was when Frank Darabont was writing about the, uh, the race to complete an atomic bomb. Uh, and he was calling it Indiana Jones and the Destroyer of Worlds. And I just, I loved that. Now, obviously, that doesn't really work when you've got spacemen. But, oh well, you know, what can you do? My buddy Jeff and I, we went and saw Crystal Skull together. And in the days and weeks leading up to it, I was more and more afraid of what if it isn't good? What if it harms my love for the franchise? What, you know, I remember when they we first saw old Harrison Ford as Indy. He seemed so old. And if you look at Crystal Skull now, he just seems like Indiana Jones, but with gray hair instead of brown. He doesn't seem old at all. And in this new one, okay, there you go. That is an old Indiana Jones. But at the same time, you know, apparently that's what this movie is about. I was so worried. And my friend said, you know, it can't change your memories of the first three. It can't change that. It can only ruin your fandom, your your love for the franchise, if you let it. And so I, I went with that in mind of, you know, what if it's not good? Well, that's okay, because three of them were. And that really, really helped me. I didn't hate Crystal Skull at all. I recognize that it is an inferior film, and I recognize that there are things that just plain don't work that were mistakes. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is stuff like just the over-reliance on CG that looks like CG. But even though the fourth movie is not great, my love for Indiana Jones went on. And here we are now in 20, what is it, 23 now? And we're finally getting another Indiana Jones movie. We should have had another three or four, right? But we haven't, you know, it took Steven Spielberg dropping out for it finally to happen, and uh, that's too bad, because I love Steven Spielberg, but if that's what it took, you know, we'll, we'll find out. It, there will be things that James Mangold does that Spielberg would never have done, but I understand that Mangold tried to keep in mind the feel of the original movies and tried to replicate that in framing and cinematography blocking and that so so we will see i just want to give you one more little silly stupid detail so a, a few years back when i was in college many years back right when i was around that age where i had roommates i had some tapes that i had brought with me and one of them was that cassette tape that i had made in 1980, probably 85 by this point, uh, although maybe not, of Temple of Doom. And my roommate was playing it, or I was playing it at night, and I fell asleep and awoke to my roommate freaking out. And I, you know, it's one of those where, you know, I was still half asleep, and he's going on and on about devil worship. I was just like, what, what? And he said, uh, we're listening to devil worship music, that there's, there's satanic music playing. And, and he was freaking out about it. And I was just like, what? It? And then I heard, and it was the, you know, the, the music, the molaram, sudaram, molaram, 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 sudaram, it's, it's that stuff. 
and he was just out of his mind, freaked out about it. Where I, and I was just like, oh, oh, okay, okay. And I, I ran over and I turned off the tape and I apologized. I took the tape out of the machine and I tried to explain, you know, that it's from uh, Temple of Doom, and, you know, the human sacrifice scene. And, and you know, I, it, it, ne- it had always seemed really, really cool to me. But it had never occurred to me, you know, that it could freak somebody out. Uh, it turns out he was really, really religious and superstitious and you know, he was, he was upset about this music playing. And I, I, I remember feeling shame. You know, I had done something wrong. I, I was not right with God. And I think, you know, he, he may have said something about that. You know, if, if you can't tell that that is wrong, then there's something wrong with you. I, I, and, and, and a better story teller than me could spin that experience and make it very, very funny of him peeing his pants and running around talking about devil worship and that. But again, I think I'm just a little too empathetic. I, I imagine what must have been going through his head and, and, and I feel bad. I feel sorry. And I do. I feel ashamed that I had, I don't know, put those feelings into his heart, something like that. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, yes, I, I said it. I'm thinking I'm going to retire that. But again, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of my Indiana Jones memories. And uh, talking about Temple of Doom made me think of it. And um, maybe I'll go listen to that again and, and, and ponder the, the loss of my soul. Uh, and I will be back soon with more. Okay, so this is uh, the second part of my episode. I'm, I, I, I'm of two minds. <laughs> I was considering just scrapping it, even though I'd recorded all this stuff, all this heartfelt remembrance about Indiana Jones. I thought, do I really want to record an episode about Dial of Destiny? And there you go. That's a bit of a spoiler, I suppose, as to what I thought of the movie. Uh, it's funny, the movie is the movie is done and out, and uh, I've been seeing people post their opinions on it. And there are people that liked it less than I did, and there are people that liked it more than I did. And the ones that liked it more, I envy. And I think that with the Star Wars sequels, and definitely with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I was one of those people that liked it more than the people around me. I think the Star Wars sequels, even Rise of Skywalker, are better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But, eh, what are you going to do? But yeah, I I may have said, I can't remember at this point, that my love for the Indiana Jones movies goes in chronological order. It's so easy to remember the, the order in which I like them. And that, that has not changed. I was very excited when I had heard James Mangold say that the first 20 minutes of the movie was him trying to emulate Steven Spielberg's Indiana Jones movies to make them look the same, the lighting, the, the cinematography, and then, you know, obviously using technology to make indie look 
that age when those Spielberg ones were made, the trilogy rather, and then it was going to become his movie set in modern times, set in 1969. And, and I think that that set me up for being able to enjoy the start of Dial of Destiny more. The movie was, was first released at the Cannes Film Festival. And the reviewers that were there in France reviewed it, and the reviews were not kind. And so I felt like that set me up for, okay, you need, you need to dampen down your expectations a little bit. Obviously, this is not going to be a movie for everybody, but hopefully you will be able to see the glasses half full. And, and we got trailers. I'm trying to remember. I think the first trailer was at the San Diego Comic-Con last year, and then eventually we got that trailer. And immediately there was criticism about the CG, about the phoniness of the, the young indie footage and then the phoniness of everything else of like him on a horse him obviously not really at a ticker tape parade or in a subway him obviously not really jumping from one vehicle like rickshaw or whatever you call them to another and i thought well listen that's the trailer guys the movie is months and months away so they featured some shots that aren't completely done or they sent the special effects house okay we need these three shots at the uh get them done as quickly as possible and we will put them in the trailer and obviously the movie will look better when it comes out and you know that wasn't the case they have this very very clever way of starting the movie where they throw a bag over indy's head and you're following the nazis who have captured him you know, dragging him around and pushing him in one vehicle and then the other, all with his face covered while the credits roll. And the credits are made to look exactly the way the Raiders credits looked, like the, the, the same font, same size. You know, obviously there's the John Williams music. And I thought that that was very clever, that they maintained that, maintained that, maintained that, and then... You get the James Mangold credit, and then they pull the hood off of Indy's face. And at that point, it all came crashing down for me. And you know what? It wasn't as bad as Princess Leia in Rise of Skywalker. It wasn't as bad as Princess Leia in Rogue One. It wasn't as bad as Jeff Bridges in Tron 2, uh, but it, it was bad. It did not look real. It didn't look alive. It looked like a cutscene in an Indiana Jones video game to me. And I know that they spent a fortune on it. You know, the, the budget was, was high. But it would not have been nearly as high if they hadn't had those sequences. And I, I was just horrified by the way it looked. I couldn't immerse myself in the storytelling because of that face. It, I know it's not as bad as the Polar Express, but it, it might as well have been. 
It, it was like when you're talking to somebody and they've got food in their teeth or worse, they've got like a booger in their mustache or something like that. And you don't want to look at it. You, you, you want to look away. It's like, let me continue to respect you, sir. And so whenever CG Indy was on the screen, I would try and look at the people he was around. I wouldn't look at his face. I, I have always been sensitive to these, these special effects problems when there have been people that, are, that talk about how good things are. I'm never able to feel that way. There have been two or three that were just excellent in the past. I always hold up Michael Douglas in the opening scene of Ant-Man. I uh, thought that the digital euthening in Blade Runner 2 was really good because Rachel was supposed to be a replicant. And if it didn't look quite real, that was because she, this creature wasn't quite real. And there was one, and I'm trying to remember what it was. There was one that was recent where I was just like, that's excellent. That's uh, just, oh, okay. That last awful Terminator movie that was called Dark Fate, I think, had a, a you know, youthened Sarah Connor and John Connor in the opening sequence. And I thought it was just excellent. I thought it was the best digital de-aging I have ever seen in a movie ever. Now, granted, that was not a good movie. I felt like it was pretty close to a disaster as far as movies go. But that opening sequence was really, really, really impressive. And I, I wish that Indy had been like that, but it wasn't. And I always knew I was looking at a special effect. And later my nephew said, what, was that something that they shot years and years ago? And they didn't use it until this movie or was it, it was from one of the old movies? And and I was envious that he could wonder that. You know, I had meant to sit my nephew down and show him Raiders before we went and saw this movie so that he would have an idea of what to expect as far as an Indiana Jones movie. But maybe it was better that we didn't. I, who can say? But I guess I was going to say that if we had just watched Raiders, then maybe it would be all the more noticeable you know, what it used to look like versus what it looks like now. And in the past, my complaints have been about CG is that it's so easy. And in some cases it's cheap, but not always, but easier than doing practical effects, easier than doing stunts that are dangerous, stunts that are expensive and difficult and hard to get insurance clearance on and that sort of thing. But there is something to be said for really doing something in a real location. And what's funny is that the movie at a certain point, it does start to work. It does start to be a, an Indiana Jones movie. It does start to feel like the others. And I was able to enjoy it. I was able to immerse myself almost entirely once we reached that point. But it was an hour into the movie. And <laughs> I don't, I can't recommend a movie where after the first hour, it starts to get good. Do you know what I mean? We've all 
talk to somebody who recommends a television show. It's usually like a Netflix streaming type show that says if you can make it past the first three or four episodes, it gets really good. And maybe you took them up on it. Maybe you're like, okay, all right, I'll, I'm willing to, uh, to give it that. But I would think a lot of people aren't. And with this movie, yeah, it, if you really have to suffer through the first, you know, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and 10 minutes, what, however long it is, before you start to enjoy it, then something is wrong. And part of it is that these characters that they introduce are not particularly likable and they don't establish the relationships between the characters in a very good way so that we understand that Indy loves Helena or we understand that Helena loves the kid that's in the movie. There's a, a kid sidekick in the movie. We get a lot of hostility toward Indy from Helena. She is his goddaughter, but I guess he abandoned her for the last 18 years, something like that. She feels abandoned by him. She resents him. She shows up. She sort of cozies up to him, gets into his good graces, and then steals from him. And that's not an excellent way to make us like somebody. Do you know what I mean? We, we, want, we want a reason to care about these characters. And sometimes just having somebody we do care about, care about them, is, is enough. But I feel like just a, a couple of small changes would have made the movie better. And one of them is had Helena had obvious real affection for Indy from the very beginning, and he had obvious real affection for her. They established that his son has died, right? And that's sad for Indy, regardless of whether you liked Mutt Williams or not. But it would have been an easy opportunity for him to embrace this girl that he hasn't seen for a while, who is his goddaughter. You know, so now, hey, I have uh, family again. I think that just making those two closer at the very time, first time we see them, and having, instead of having Helena betray Indy, steal from him, then make her escape, and he goes to, was it Algiers? To reclaim his property, or to keep her out of trouble, I guess, to have her ask for his help, and for him to say, I'm too old, I'm not who I used to be anymore, I can't help you. And then she gets in trouble because she tries to do it on her own, and he feels like he has to go and help her. He has to go and get her out of trouble, even though he's over the hill, even though he feels like he's no longer the, the hero that he once was, I think that that would have made the movie better. And establishing Helena's relationship with the boy, and that he's not just a kid that she just happened to meet there, but it is her short round. He's a trusted ally 
and she would do anything to protect him and he would do anything to protect her. If they could establish that early on, it makes a difference. There's a scene where the boy is kidnapped by the Nazis and Helena does show concern for him and Indy says they won't hurt him, they need him. And then the Nazis have taken the boy and he manages to escape. Then the Nazis catch up to Indy and Helena, but they don't have the boy with them. And neither Indy nor Helena asked where the boy was. Is the boy all right? What happened? Neither of them say anything. And there's dollars to donuts they shot a line of one of them asking because there's no way Steven Spielberg would sign off on this movie if they hadn't done that. And for some reason they trimmed that line, but I missed it. I needed that line because we know that the boy escaped and that he's all right. But Indy and Helena don't know that. The, the, the Nazis could have put a bullet in his head for all they know. And I felt like we needed to be reminded that they care about this kid. God, it's so easy to be a backstreet, a backseat driver, to be a, a Monday morning quarterback, to be a juggler with three balls. But I wanted to like this movie a lot more than I did. I mean, Indiana Jones is my hero, more so than any heroic character. I mean, there's there's Spider-Man, yeah. I love Spider-Man, but I you know, I don't read the comics anymore. And, yeah, I think Indy still narrowly beats Spider-Man. And so I would have loved nothing more than to be one of those people that are just like, I thought it was great. You know, if, if, if I could feel about Indy 5 the way that I felt about Across the Spider-Verse, that would have been great. If I could have felt about Indy 5 the, the way that I felt about The Last Jedi, wow, that would have been great. If I could have felt about Indy 5 the way I felt about The Flash. That would have been great. As it stands, I might go see it again just so that I can say I did, but I might not. So I guess I hadn't been recording that whole time. Early, early on, there's this scene where Sala, who we love, and, and it's so happy, it's so great to see Sala again. I mean, they, they put a fez on him and and that way you recognize that it is Sala because it's been so, so long. He takes Indy to the airport and they have a little interaction scene that's great. And then Indy goes on his adventure and Sala stays behind. And that made me sad because I wanted Sala to be able to go along. I, I understand that the whole point of the movie was that Indy is uh, over the hill that he's old and that he can't do the things that he used to do. But to see that he's alone and that people that used to go on adventures with him can't is sad. Uh, anyway, I said uh, a few minutes ago that, uh, I mean, it was actually a lot longer than a few minutes ago for me, but I recorded thinking that this thing was still going and it had shut off. And then I was getting to the end of the episode and I looked down and it hadn't been recording. But a, a, a little while ago, I, I said that there is a scene, there is a moment when it starts, the movie really started to work for me. And the scene is that Indy and Helena 
have gone into these catacombs where nobody has been for hundreds of years and using his ingenuity, his, his knowledge and all that, they are able to get to the treasure. And it started to feel like an Indiana Jones movie. It started to suck me in. And I am sad that it took that long. Sad is the word I just keep going back to, isn't it? That it took that long for me to get pulled into the movie. And, but, but from that point on, they had me. The rest of the movie I quite enjoyed. And, you know, there was this buzz over the last more than a year now that time travel would be involved in the movie. And there were people who were like, that does not belong in an Indiana Jones movie. In the same way that when Crystal Skull came out, you know, it's like aliens don't belong in an Indiana Jones movie. And Spielberg said that Lucas tried to convince him that they were interdimensional beings. They're not aliens. Come on. It's, a, it's okay, Steve. But you know what? The interdimensional beings, the aliens didn't bother me that much. And the time travel, I thought, worked very, very well. So, so the scene of, of going back in time and then discovering that they're in the wrong time and Indy being able to speak Latin to Archimedes, I was with all of that. I really, really enjoyed all of that. And, and um, the ending of the movie, when Marion comes back, that totally worked for me. You know, there's a little callback to Raiders of the Lost Ark in the dialogue. And I, I was eating it up. I didn't know that she had come back. It was, it was a very nice surprise. I think in Crystal Skull, it was supposed to have been a surprise that Marion came back. But she was all over the marketing of that. They had made a decision to uh, reveal that they'd brought her back. And... In this one, they kept it a secret, although I'll bet you could have found out all of its secrets. I mean, especially when a movie comes out months ahead of time in another country. Uh, if you want to seek out all of its spoilers, you can do that. I liked the ending quite a bit, but I felt like they, they were setting up. At one point, Helena asks Indy what he would do if he could go back in time. And he said, I would stop my son from enlisting. He, he did it because he was mad at me. And I felt like that that was a setup for a payoff. If you've got a time travel movie, that somehow Indy would be able to send himself a message or have Archimedes set a message that in 2,000 years in the future, only Indy would understand some, some way that it could save the life of his kid. And, and obviously, I was wrong on that. They didn't choose to go that way. And just because a movie doesn't go the way that I thought that it would, you know, it, it doesn't mean that the movie has failed. I just, I just felt like if you have the ability to go back in time, and you have a character ask Indy what you would change if you could go back in time. I wanted them to change that. I guess I'm spoiled by Back to the Future, the greatest movie ending in the history of film, where by his actions of going back in time, he made his present better for the people around him. I love that. And, and you know what? I'll, I'll go with 10 rounds. I'll go a dozen rounds with anybody that doesn't like that. Please bleep out my profanity here.
And I thought I, that wasn't what they were trying to say in this movie. I get that. They were trying to say that everybody, even great heroes, lose. And what makes them a hero is that they're able to forge on. They're able to continue even though they have lost or gotten hurt. Indy has always been this very fallible hero, this, this, this hero that feels the punches, that feels the years. And maybe it would have been disingenuous to bring Mutt back. But I would have been very happy to see Marion and Mutt and a grandchild walk through the door at the end of the movie. And it's like a little boy that idolizes his grandpa. And his name is Henry Jones the third or some shit like that. I, I am becoming emotional imagining it. <laughs> I'm glad that they got to do a fifth movie. I know that if Harrison had had his way, we would have been on the seventh or eighth movie by now. And it's a shame that we didn't get any in the, the 90s when Harrison was still young and before you know, this onslaught of bad CG cheapened everything. But who knows, you know? Maybe we never would have gotten to Dial of Destiny because of that. I, I, I can't say. You know, recently there was a lot of talk of what would Tim Burton's third Batman have been like if Michelle Pfeiffer had come back and Michael Keaton had come back. And, and it wouldn't have been Batman forever. It would have been different. And there is a parallel universe out there where that happened. There may be a parallel universe where this was the eighth Indiana Jones. And, you know, they put the series to bed the same way that they did here. But it was, um, it was different. You know, what if they had convinced Connery to come back in Crystal Skull? I think that that might have felt like a very different movie. Anyhow, I can't, I didn't hate the movie, but I didn't love it, and I didn't even like it until that midway point. Yet it, it, it doesn't break my heart the way that Revenge of the Sith did. You know, speaking of going 10 to 13 rounds, did I say 13 before? I think I only said 12. But, you know, I just, I hate Revenge of the Sith. I hate it. And I will go many, many rounds with people who love it because it's terrible. And Dial of Destiny wasn't terrible. If you, if you loved it, if you really, really enjoyed it, if you didn't have any of the problems that I had, if you thought that the CG was perfect, if you thought that this was a, an, an excellent final chapter of this franchise. I don't resent you at all. I envy you. I, I'm not sure that I will go see the movie again. But if somebody told me the second time you see it, all these faults, all these flaws, think problems that you had the first time, they will fade away. They will not be there. And you'll just be carried by the narrative. And you'll notice that there's brand new John Williams music that's just excellent. And it feels like Indiana Jones. Uh, if somebody told me that and I believed it, I would definitely go see it again. And I, I would love 
to be a seven-year-old boy again and see adventure on a scale I'd never seen before, to be whisked away by the power of the movies in a way that I never had been before. For that, I thank Steven Spielberg and Harrison Ford and George Lucas and Frank Marshall. I love Indiana Jones. And I hope that he lives forever. If not, you know, in the cinema, if not in the magazines, the pulp stories, then in our hearts. I have been Rich Outfield. And I have a lot of fond memories of that dog. Good night. The Rich Outcast has reached its end. And on reflection, I suspect it was produced with some sort of Creative Commons license. Perhaps a non-commercial one. It is my recommendation that you share this file, if you see fit. But do not try to sell it, or change it, or make alterations to it. If that goes well, perhaps you could contribute a dollar an episode or more to the Patreon fund attached to it over at www.patreon.com forward slash Rish Outfield to ensure that more episodes are produced. If that does not go well, however, I suggest you run. Now! Here the rippling voice sobered and a tinge of solemnity creeped and a tinge of solemnity and a tinge of solemnity crept and a tinge of solemnity crept in sancti michelangeli michelang sancte michel sancte michel archangeli defendenos in proelio contra nequitiam et insidias diavoli esto presidium Sancte Michelangeli, Sancte Michel Archangeli, defendenos in proelio contra nequitiam, nequitiam, contra nequitiam et, contra nequitiam et, contra nequitiam et insidies diavoli esto praesidium. Oh, he spoke softly. Sancte Michael Archangeli, defendenos in proelio contra nequitiam, contra nequitiam, et insidias diavoli esto presidium. It says it's 87 degrees. It feels so much warmer. I think I'm just much, much fatter. What's it like being this fat, you f***? Uh, it, it, not great. I'll give you that.